I am notoriously hard to be heard, so I rely on the back row to raise their hands when they can't hear me. Catherine, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm wearing hearing, I'm wearing hearing aids, and it's very difficult to judge. I seem to be shouting, and people can't hear me from four feet away. I want to set the scene. It's Columbia University in 1971. The academic job market had crumbled. We thought in the 60s that an infinite supply of PhDs in the humanities would be welcome. In fact, they were welcome for about six years. And the next 20 or 30 years were spent uh, watching PhDs in English literature sell Venetian blinds. I wandered into the School of Library Service at Columbia, a graduate uh, school at Columbia by accident, having completed a PhD in English literature and having expected to go on to teach 18th century English literature. But one of my dissertation sponsors, Alan Hazen, had a heart attack while I was uh, completing my dissertation and I took over a couple of courses for him. Uh, one in descriptive bibliography at the Graduate Library School at Columbia and never left. The dean of the school, Richard Darling, asked me to develop a program in rare book librarianship and antiquarian bookselling. And over the next 20 years, that is what occupied most of my attention at Columbia. In those days, antiquarian booksellers got their education primarily by way of apprenticeship, they certainly did not generally go to library school. And rare book librarians at the upper end of the orchard were for the most part academics, PhD'd faculty members who wandered into special collections and in some cases stayed there because their faculties wanted them out. And this was a place where they wouldn't show. The library schools did produce catalogers and other below-stairs people, but by and large there was a gap between rare book catalogers and the people who did exhibitions and served drinks and uh, bought books for special collections. I remember talking to Ruth Mortimer, who had been rare book cataloger at Harvard for many years, producing two monumentally uh, large and important bibliographer bibliography, 16th century Italian books, 16th century, 16th century French books, both illustrated, and asking her why she had moved from rare book cataloging at Harvard to become uh, the curator of rare books at Smith College, of which she was an alumna. And indeed, she was the chair of the search committee to produce a new curator of her books at Smith, her committee met in her absence and nominated her. She said she did it because she was sick of people from Europe coming to the Houghton and asking for her because they knew her books and they didn't know who she was because she was below stairs. And uh, so off she went to a shop of her own. There never really was a program in the training of rare book librarians or antiquarian bookselling. 
before the Columbia program. And because New York City is expensive, and because Columbia is expensive, the students we got in the library school were competent and ambitious. Most people go to library school fairly close to home. There are now and have always been only a relatively few number of library schools that are genuinely national as opposed to regional. So I got very good students and those of you who teach know that it is impossible to ruin a student in a nine-month program. The, the result is that students from the Columbia New Rare Book Program began getting the jobs. In 1983, because the year really wasn't enough, I started a summer institute as much as anything for my own master students at Columbia. This uh, is Rare Book School. It started with eight courses in uh, 1983 and moved on to uh, stay at Columbia until 1992 when it moved to the University of Virginia w along with me. I was of course not the only instructor in rare books at Columbia. My colleagues included Paul Banks, Susan Davis, the archivist, Roman Drosniowski, great map curator, William Joyce, Susan Summer, Suki Summer, music, Susan Otis Thompson, Robert Sink, archivist, G. Thomas Tansel, and of course, for those who know, Kenneth Loth. I had had no experience in rare books before I began uh, developing this program, so it was very much learned by doing. Once the program got going, I generally had about two dozen students who considered themselves to be in the rare book program. The dean of the school gave me a room smaller than this one to serve as a laboratory, but there was no money and it seemed unlikely that there ever would be any money. So that anything we had to develop had to be developed in a uh, moneyless environment. But there were some exceptions to that. We did have a press room in our small room, 211 Butler Library, because the library had had printing equipment from back in the days of Lehman Haupt in the 1930s. So we had uh, uh, two small printing presses, uh, a small Arho & Co. and a table press, and sufficient type. So that I was able, with my students, to start laboratory sessions in which students got a chance to set prose and to machine it on our presses. Okay, you have handouts in front of you. Each one of these large manila folders contains two completely separate handouts. So you want to pass one to a neighbor. You only need one of these. The other one is the same thing. We have two identical packets and there are going to be some extras. Tim has an extra here. He's nobody to sit with him. And inside, 
the uh, shiny paper folder, you've got something like this, and you want to pull the contents out of that. You're not going to be able to do more than glance at this stuff, but these are yours to keep. So uh, you can take them home. You have a blue folder like this. You'll see th that it was a, uh, t t terrified amateurs setting 14-point Caslon and running it off themselves. You can see the names of the people who did it. Uh, we did one of these every year for many years, a number of students in this room, former students, who will remember it only too well. Uh, it cost very little except for the paper because as it happened we had a press and we had hand type to use. In the early days I had a core group of School of Library Service students who formed an organization called the Friends, uh, uh, called the Printers of the Book Arts Press. The Book Arts Press was our name in those days. And they helped me raise money uh, to buy type and to buy paper and so forth and so on. Many of you are acquainted with the Rare Book School Valentine. If you're not, you should be. Uh, we sold those Valentines in the early days for 25 cents a piece and made quite a bit of money. Uh, Two of the printers of the Book Arts Press would be known to many of you, Irene Titchener and the late Peter Van Wingen. One of the things that uh, I did, because it was just a nine-month program in those days, it became a 12-month program eventually, uh, was to, in addition to my regular class sessions, I had laboratory sessions. And because I normally had between 20 and 25 students in the program, I split them into two classes in, and, generally speaking, into either four or six labs. So that each student saw me four hours a week. Now, that meant that I was in the classroom with one course for 16 or 18 hours a week. So it was high-impact teaching. On the other hand, the advantage of that kind of teaching is that you get to know your students very well very fast by comparison to most one-year programs. And it was clear uh, that both the students and I were buying into the program pretty seriously. One of the things I did that cost no money at all was to have students do handwriting exercises. I had them practice italic handwriting from Fred Eager's handwriting manual, which I had copies of for everybody in the labs, and also I had them design letter forms. I invited them to draw short words like L-O-T, both in sans serif and serif type. Uh, it is very, very much more difficult than you think it is, as they discovered. Some of the students in the course actually learned italic handwriting talk to John Bidwell, who's at this conference, you'll notice that his italic hand is very nice. Well, that started in a descriptive bibliography lab in 1974. In your uh, handouts, you'll have something that begins 
one of the reasons looks like this. That explains a bit about what we did with calligraphy. Most of you here know that uh, I am a genius and have credentials to prove it. <laughs> what not all of you are aware of is what I am a genius at, and that is self-promotion. I'm not kidding. These, and there are a couple of others in your packet, were uh, the Bookhouse Press later Rare Book School Christmas cards and they had the purpose of selling the program and uh, selling me I suppose uh, we had a friends group which grew to uh, substantial proportions before the end of the day but these Christmas cards were for them and they sort of followed me around mentally for a long time now, one of the things I had when I moved to Virginia in 92, one of the things I had my undergraduates do, something which I think is now hard to do, I had them read by candlelight, and I also had them copy by candlelight. Could I have a handful of the th those? I took a very bad copy of a 1570 Bible and divided them into gatherings so that each of my students got one they then copied it for half an hour by candlelight <laughs> it gave them respect let me tell you the first thing that happened of course is that for the women their hair caught on fire because you find yourself leaning over the candle but it, it's hard to do now because most places don't allow open flames. But towards the end, my students simply went out into the parking lot and, and, and read there. There's a lot you can do, and you can buy a bad broken copy of a 16th century book for two figures uh, if it's uh, sufficiently boring, but I wanted it to be boring. Uh, so th these are all going to be over here. I'll be taking a break after a bit, and you can wander over and take a look at this stuff more closely if you would like to. I mentioned Susan T. Summer, Suki Summer, who was the brilliant uh, rare book librarian for music at New York Public. She was the curator of the Toscanini archives. She and her colleague, Jean uh, Bowen, who was the head of the music department at New York Public, developed a system which has been used at Rare Book School many, many times since. She called it an Stations of the Cross, where she would set up at New York Public in Rare Books or at the Morgan Library, where the curator was a friend, uh, a dozen or 15 very valuable objects on easels with an explanation directly in front of it. And the students sat down in chairs in front of the easels with the object, which could be a Mozart letter or a Bach manuscript uh, or a Brahms uh, song. There were things of absolute value. Now, students were told if they touched most of them, they would get their fingers broken. But there they were, six inches away from them, with a description, and then after five minutes a bell rang and everybody moved down one seat. So it meant over a space of 90 minutes, students got to see about 15 objects, five minutes for each. Uh, 
Erin Blake does this a lot in Rare Book School because she's smarter than I am. She calls it uh, Bibliorama, but I think of it as Stations of the Cross because that's what it really is. Uh, it is a very good way to show relatively valuable material in a relatively efficient way. Can I have a, 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 a Van Allen tray? Oh, yeah, these are the music packets too. We've had several uh, generations of this. These come from Pier 1? Ikea. Or Ikea, thank you. With felt. Uh, oh. It's for passing things around in class. I mean, books don't like to be passed. No book is ever improved by being passed from hand to hand 12 times, let alone 20 or 30 times. But you can put it on a tray like this and you can even fasten it down with weights and uh, it works very well in the classroom for, for a substantial number of people. So Rivers School has a vast stack of those now and very handy they are too. We used to call them Allen baskets after Sue Allen who passed a lot of stuff around in her, uh, in her binding class. Uh, there's a problem in teaching all of you who teach have faced it. Can I have the two life magazines? My undergraduate classes uh, at Virginia were generally 12 students, which is an enormous advantage. But I learned the hard way, as I'm sure many of you have learned the hard way, that if you have 12 students and you hand out 12 copies of a 1930s Life magazine, you have lost them f until you take them away. You cannot compete with material that you pass around in the classroom. If this is interesting to somebody who was born in the 1990s, uh, if you pass around a 1930s thing, it's not the texts that they were interested in, it was the advertisements. These are acquirable for a couple of bucks a piece and they teach like a dream, but you cannot teach with them unless you're teaching with them. You can't move on to another subject, so you've got to have one for everybody. You can't pass them around. They won't pass. You know, they, they refuse to pass it along. <laughs> so you have to be careful with handouts. Now, one of the things we did at Columbia, and in the early days especially, is we began having visiting lectures. Now, we were fortunate everybody wants to come to New York. And uh, a friend, Edith Hazen, the widow of my dissertation sponsor, one of them, uh, lived in the neighborhood and very obligingly put up speakers. And that was a big deal. There's one of them sitting in the room. That was a big deal because New York hotels are expensive. And people would come and speak for me just because they could stay with Mrs. Hazen, because it gave them a base of operations. Uh, the advantage of having speakers is that the speakers go away and go other places and talk about your program. So it's a way to make your own program better known. We got into the habit of inviting, visiting, uh, of pu putting together tours for visiting British scholars. It's, it was enormously difficult in those pre-internet days for somebody out of the country to set up half a dozen lectures in half a dozen places in the United States in some kind of a coherent order because the expenses of going New York, San Francisco, Boston, Los Angeles was impossible. They had to be in some sort of a coherent uh, sequence. So we 
had a list of people who took lectures. There's at least one person in the room who will remember this well. Um, and they would too. Three. They would simply get a notice from me. James Mosley is touring in the United States in 14 months. These are the dates. He has five lectures. Are you interested? And I had a list probably of about 30 different places. And, you know, not everybody needed a lecture in October. Not everybody was interested in what Mosley had to lecture on. He was the librarian of the St. Bride Printing Library and the world's greatest expert uh, on English typography, and still is. So uh, we did one or two tours a year for the better part of 20 years. In, and our speakers included Chris Clarkson, James Mosley, John Dreyfus, uh, um, Nicholas Pickwode, seven times, Ian Willison, nine times. And we did posters, and I've given you some of the posters in the larger uh, packet so you can see the kind of thing we did. The hope was to make a poster that was sufficiently provocative. They're 11 by 17. They're in your big folder to make posters that were sufficiently provocative so that the speakers would go home and frame them and put them on their office walls because it continued the PR aspect. These are all homemade and basically they cost nothing. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. Rare Book School started, as I said, but largely as a summer camp for my own students in uh, 1983. There was a general feeling by 83 that uh, the Columbia Mafia, graduates of the Columbia Rare Book Program, were beginning to get all the jobs. This was not entirely true. But by uh, taking what we taught at Columbia and just dividing it into five-day segments, we opened the program up to even to those who had the misfortune of already having a library degree someplace else and who therefore could not come to Columbia. The presence of Rare Book School and the Rare Book School faculty uh, further obviously made the Columbia programs well known. There are a dozen graduates of the Columbia program at this conference ones that uh, you might have run into include Martin Antonetti, John Bidwell, Joan Friedman, Claudia Funke, Ellen Gilbert, James Green, Alexis Hagedorn, Nina Mizinski, Catherine Reagan, uh, three people who got notices, uh, Azelvia Smuck-Tannenbaum, Daniel Traster, David Weitzel. So a distinguished bunch uh, who have now gone on to be ornaments to their profession but other names you might recognize from that program. Anna Lou Ashby, Carol Briggs, Peter Drummy, Donald Farron, Bruce McKittrick, remember it was librarians and booksellers. Jennifer Lee, Melissa Mead, Christine Nelson, Karen Nipps, Richard Noble, Carolyn Schimmel, Alice Schreier, Teresa Salazar, Jane Rogers Siegel, Samuel Allen Streit, Susie Taraba, Peter Van Wingen. Again, if you're not in library circuits, you may not know these names, but if you are, you do. The growth of the Rare Book School collections was an example of vegetable growth. The first year you have two leaves, and the second year you have four leaves, and the third year you have eight leaves, or twelve leaves, and so on. So where do we get stuff? There was no eBay 
in the 1970s. We bought stuff from used bookstores. In your handout is something which many of you will have seen, uh, antiquarian bookselling in Charlottesville. This started out as a simple list which we handed out uh, to students and anybody else simply cataloging the local booksellers and some indication as to what they sold. The book trade is going to be very grateful if you do such a thing. And you need the book trade because you want them to sell you things at very reduced prices, often things that no one else would buy because they are incomplete, they are ugly, they are uh, unsaleable. But as I used to tell people, at Rare Book School, at the Book Arts Press, half a print is half as good as a whole print. I once threatened to d divide some prints into nine strips if I didn't get more, so everybody would have a bit of sky and a tree and a bit of a lake and maybe a person or two at the bottom. So, one of your great sources of supply are local and regional antiquarian booksellers, especially if you get to know them well enough so that they get a sense that you're interested in material that is otherwise unsaleable. Can I have the two old school books? These are a drug on the market, 19th century American school books. Even the American Antiquarian Society doesn't want them. But if you're teaching about intensive reading, these are remarkably successful in class. They've been read to bits, and that's the advantage, because the more they're read and the more uh, dog-eared and soiled they are, the cheaper you're going to be able to buy them for. No one else wants a book like this. But a combination of half a dozen of these and 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 the Van Allen baskets uh, enable you to make a point about the difference between reading extensively and reading intensively during a period when most students in this country had to buy their books when they were in school and that they were therefore passed down from older sibling to younger sibling and even among the generations. Uh, so and, you know, Rare Book School has dozens of these things, and I'm sure that we never paid anything like three figures for any of them, and many of them we paid one figure for. And some we were just given because book dealers finally just give up on unsold stock. So, vegetable growth. If you do not know the acronym T-A-L-A-S, TALUS, you should. How many know it? Isn't that interesting? Very few. TALUS uh, is the country's best supplier of, very broadly speaking, conservation supplies. It sells paper, it sells marbled paper, it sells bone folders, it sells everything under the sun. They have a brilliant web presence. They have a wonderful catalog, which is free with the best indexing I've ever seen. 
Talas, T-A-L-A-S. But no longer a retail presence in Manhattan. They no longer have an open shop. They have one, but they, see, that's New York City talking. They have a retail shop in Brooklyn, but that doesn't count, of course. <laughs> okay, another place, and I'm going I'm to want the fishing tackle box. Another place where you can get stuff is from private press printers. They're all over the country. And what characterizes them often is that they have a great deal of money and very little time. So they like to go out and buy printing equipment, which they then have no time to use. So having filled Dixie Cops with examples for years, I finally took the trouble to buy 12 fishing tackle boxes uh, at Kmart and to fill them up with a piece of wood type and a uh, sort of type before the jet has been knocked off of and ligatures and an upper and lower case alphabet, dingbats, a monotype roll. This is what drives the monotype caster. Uh, a linotype slug and so forth and so on. Uh, because Kmart was under the impression that these were for fishing tackle, they've always been known as the fishing tackle boxes. There are 12 of them. Or 13? I'm not, I'm not sure which. We, we had 12 for a long time, then we realized the instructor wanted one. Well, I want to just do this. If I can. Okay. Voila. Then there's the other half that I use in the calligraphy exercise. Here's a stamp pad so they could play printer with the letters on the other side on their notes. This does not cost very much money. It takes time to do it, but how many times have these been used in the class? Hundreds? Hundreds. And Eric, do you use them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, thanks. It's fastened to it. Oh, and here's the proofs. There are little wood engravings in there, too. It doesn't cost very much to do that. So, one way to get stuff is to buy it. The second way to get stuff is to get gifts. Now, your greatest donor, although your greatest donor may not quite realize this, is your own institution. The greatest gift an institution can give you when you're starting a program is access to a photocopier. Because you can go a long way by making 50 copies of things uh, and some other very th simple things. In your large folders, the ones with my initials on them, the shiny paper, uh, you see the piece of what we call Desbib chain line paper? Would somebody in front hold it up? Well, you can do these if you have, especially if you have an 11 by 17 photocopier. They're very cheap. We have them done commercially now because uh, because we use a lot of them. These are the ones that Needham uses. Uh, also, in uh, another part of the orchard, which we'll get to, you have the uh, classic Desbib chain line paper as well. Uh, 
These are immensely useful for folding exercises in class, and it costs really nothing, especially if your institution lets you have access to the photocopier. Another thing in your packet that I've always been enormously fond of I have oh, here we go. a generous dealer named Kenneth Rundell, great manuscripts dealer, gave us a lot of stuff that he didn't want. He sells autographs, and he would buy a whole collection because it had a Nixon letter. But he really didn't want a complete collection of New York State senators' autographs. And he filled boxes with this stuff, and when he got sick of stumbling over the boxes, he gave them to us. Now, they included, rather absentmindedly, we thought, a Helen Keller letter, an Andre Monroe, uh, Malraux letter, and some stuff that was pretty good. He said, don't tell me. He's a real gentleman. So, in your packet, you have this, which was yet still another uh, Bookhart's Press Rare Book School Christmas card, and the inside tells the story of the Rendell gift, which we still use all the time, but the other side is a letter written home in the 1770s by somebody outside of Boston, or a description of it, and it was intended to be folded to be handed to a friend to be given to his mother in the next town. And this provides instructions on how to fold this and to get this. This costs nothing if you have access to a photocopier. Can I have your printer's hat? Many of you will have seen these. Uh, these you used to be able to do these in, in class with newspapers, which is what printers did, but newspapers have shrunk in size, so it's now very difficult. So we finally had uh, sheets made up, and you have one flat one in your packet. Looks like this, with the walrus and the carpenter on it, and it provides instructions on making printers' hats. Students, faculty, children of faculty, never fail to be enchanted by printer's hats if they've, if they've never made one. We don't know why, but there it is. Again, this is, you know, there's a lot of teaching in this hat. Here's one other. It's the three thing. It's got Alice on the front. It's three big photocopies. Yeah. Again, this takes a double. At one point, I mean, look, I mean, Rare Books is collections. Uh, we laughingly say there are 80,000 items in the collections, but it's a lot more than that. It's been 80,000 for nearly 10 years, I think. Uh, and we've been buying like a house of fire. Uh, this again is what you can do if you have a photocopier. You can really see woodcut. The original of this, this is half of the original. The original is the size of a playing card. And then here's the Cheshire Cat from Alice showing how wood engraving cross-hatching really isn't cross-hatching, it's uh, contrived. And 
there's a dore and there are various other things that I use and you know, made as many as I needed and, and got them back so that once you've done it uh, you can teach like hell with things like this yes you can use slides yes you can use PowerPoint this is better it really is especially these days where people are so sick of substitutional images well these are substitutional images but you know what I mean uh, they like things that they can pick up in their hands so do I Another place where you're going to be able to get material uh, is from your own libraries. And especially in setting up the Stations of the Cross, uh, they can be immensely helpful, and librarians are much friendlier uh, than most academics think they are. I mean, what characterizes a librarian? A librarian is a librarian because uh, librarians are librarians because they like to help people. That's why they went into the business. Don't forget that. They like to help you. That's what they're there for, if you're an academic. But there's some things they can't do. We've had several generations, of course, on rare material in music at Rare Book School. Uh, most collections of music that are substantial will uh, of uh, sheet music will be done either by the composer or by the name of the publisher and very often by the name of the publisher but if you want to teach various aspects of sheet music in this case each one of these is a song with a tie-in to the record or to the movie. <coughs> the librarian is perfectly happy to pull 12 of these, but the librarian will not be perfectly happy to pull 12 of them every year, especially uh, if you want to use a lot of them. This is another interesting one. Uh, novelty songs uh, between the wars and after generally didn't get photographs because photographs were more expensive to do on music covers than drawn covers. Think of those of you who are old enough, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty the Snowman. They had, uh, here's Constantinople. That's Yes, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, I think. Uh, three Little Fishes, Bell-Bottom Trousers, and so forth and so on. One of the things you have in your packet is a folded eight and a half by eleven sheet called Music Packets by Subject. Each one of these that's listed here, and as you see, it's two-sided. Each one of these is a, is listing a separate packet. So there are 70 or 80 uh, music packets, and uh, you don't use most of them in class, but you've got something like this ready to uh, enable you to find something. For example, 
uh, Bing Crosby will always sell sheet music. But what if the song is by Hokey Carmichael? Then Hokey Carmichael will trump Bing Crosby, and both of them uh, will t- trump uh, the name of the singer. Well, it's, it's all very complicated, but anyway, you, you, you get an idea of what we can do here with the packets. And uh, librarians really don't want their collections rearranged this way on a regular basis. You'll notice that they're in mylar, which means they'll last forever. For the first 15 years of Rare Book School, of the Book Arts Press, our single most expensive item was mylar. Transparent polyester that you can put labels on without disturbing whatever is inside. And they really last forever. We've had wonderful luck. I cannot imagine life without my life. <laughs> now, what you also have uh, in your packets, eight and a half by eleven folded, is something called playlist excerpt from TV's illustration process identification course. Looks like this. Each one of these looks like this. This is the first. I use about 120 packets in my course. This is uh, the ones I use on the first day. Uh, If you look, for example, under 1840 on the first page. And can I have the, the packet? It's there, S3 Byron. Facsimile wood engravings, you all have it? Okay. This was a bad copy of the 1840 Visitelli edition of Byron. I bought it in London for 10 pence. And each packet will have 13 examples in mylar like this, labeled uh, I thought when I first began this that Avery labels would be cool but after about 20 years it was like tiddlywinks. Every time we used a packet there would be labels on the floor so now we use foilback labels and it's not so much of a problem. In this case there's an original, and there's also a photocopy highlighting certain things from one of the packets that I want them to see. So again, it teaches very fast. Now, this is a packet of 13 items. Can I have uh, Vanity Fair? But I was once persuaded to give a lecture uh, using original examples to 110 people. Or at least 100 and so what the hell I did up packets that contained 56 examples in this case they're from uh, an early edition of Vanity Fair now most modern editions of Vanity Fair are not illustrated which is a pity because the illustrations are by Thackeray and not only are the illustrations by Thackeray the uh, decorated initials are Thackeray's satirical comment on his own text. So to read Vanity Fair without the pictures is ridiculous. And everybody knows it. So, passing these around, and again, 
they have a f f photocopy in them that allows the student to see more than just the ones in their packet, but they can they have reference to an original which illuminates the facsimiles. Costs no money. Uh, a bad edition of Vanity Fair Illustrated will cost you $15. And it's just a question of time. That is a problem. But, hey, nobody promised simple. Um, those are That's an example of illustration packets. Can I have the paper packets? There are paper packets, there are, are typography packets, there are all sorts of, of packets that we've just accumulated. Vegetable growth. Here's a packet which contains what? Probably, it sounds like it's about 15 or 20 examples of pen ruling. Do you ever have a, a blue book where if you wept on it, the lines ran? Because those things were made in water-based ink. Pen ruling is water-based. Do they still use them, do you suppose? But I've wept into enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so, I mean, when you're trying to, this is really very elaborate. Pen ruling, let me tell you, it's from one of the last of the pen rulers on Wall Street from uh, old fart uh, financial firms that were so rich they didn't have to change the way they'd done business. Here's another paper packet. Each one of these has a full scap watermark in it. Easy. Bad books. And a, a typography packet. What we wanted to do uh, <coughs> is to have a packet representing uh, London printing, Paris printing, uh, Italian printing for every 10 years. 1560, 1570, 1580, 1590. It didn't matter what it was, just 12 leaves. And over time, uh, I don't know how many there are, 100, I think nearly 200 typography packets. They're not used as heavily as I wish they were because we don't have quite the right course at the moment in rare book school. But sooner or later, they'll get used. I'm not worried about that. The Liverpool Mercury. Uh, a great dealer in Palo Alto named William Reedon. W-R-E-D-E-N had a house that was very curious. It was a palatial house but before he bought it all the land around it had been sold. So he was uh, virtually the only customer for a 34 room house on one acre of land. But it had a wonderful basement and you could go into the basement. He had a retail shop but the basement was the mother load and you went in and you looked for stuff. It was the size of this building's floor. And then there might be prices, but they were irrelevant. You built a pile, and then he priced them for you on the spot, and you said yes, no, yes, no. Uh, he had a very imperfect run of an early 19th century bound volume of the Liverpool Mercury, a thrice-weekly provincial no account paper. He sold it to me for three dollars. That was for the volume. Okay, it would be more now, but it would still be cheap. But this is the issue for Friday, September 30th, 1840, and it contains the report of the captain who burned the capital. I have the pleasure to report to you, sir, that we killed the bridge, we killed the president's palace, this teaches like a dream.
as you can imagine. And the other issues mostly are about Napoleon. Three dollars. Necessity is the mother of invention. Now, another place where you can get stuff besides from your own library and by paying money and from book dealers is uh, from book collectors. Every collector of any experience in any substance has books, I mean all, all collectors of any experience have books that they now dislike. They were purchases that they uh, now regret. They have bought better copies. They've stopped buying nonsense like that. Uh, many of them would love to get rid of them in some sort of uh, non-incendiary way. And so it is good to know collectors because they will give you stuff. And in many parts of the orchard, you know, if it's a private press book and somebody has set a coffee cup down on the cover, it ceases to have any value at all. It's worth 10% of what it would have been before the coffee cup was put down. So you can also buy these things on occasion. Uh, f this doesn't work for everybody, but of course Rare Book School is essentially like a, a game of Chinese checkers. There are a lot of marbles on the board, and every year we get a new bag. So over time, some of the alumni from the program, knowing from grim experience, because a class they took didn't have stuff it needed, so they, when they come across it, they'll give it to you. And we've had uh, very good luck with that. Rare Book School, Barbara, is what we get given worth as much as what we pay for? It's hard to say, isn't it? We get an awful lot of very valuable stuff as gifts. Yes. Yeah, well, well of course, because my stuff is not, yeah, there's no question. Uh, we get more as gifts than we do in purchase. Yes. Uh, and look, in 1992, I moved 23 tons of material. I have the receipt from Columbia to Virginia. The collections are five times as big now, three times as big. Uh, vegetable growth. Now, our lives were changed for the better in the late 90s with something called eBay. I went on to eBay for the first time on the 11th of March 1998 and my life has never been the, the, the same since. <laughs> in 1998 we had two wood engravings. Rare Book School now has more than 900 wood engravings. In 1998, we had two intaglio plates. We now have 200. We had one litho stone. We now have 40 or 50. All, virtually all, from eBay. Now, those of you who aren't familiar with eBay, get a friend to introduce you to the principle of the contemptuous bid. <laughs> you want it. It's too expensive. But what the hell? You put a bid in for 10% of what you think it's going to go for? And every once in a while, you're going to get it. I once bought a two-volume Italian encyclopedia in marbled cloth binding, the rarest of all Victorian bindings. It was two-volume uh, because it was an Italian-English and an English-Italian dictionary, 1852 English. I got it for 10p. There were no other bids. And, uh, I mean, I was ashamed. 
I actually I sent the dealer some money because I was afraid they would they would put a postage stamp on the front cover and send it to me <laughs> like that. It was from England, and and you know they were pros. They took their medicine, they sent it, and uh, Sue Allen was very pleased with me on that one. But uh, eBay is it, 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 I'm sorry. eBay requires patience and it requires expertise. One of the great experts somebody that many of you will know is uh, Vince Golden of the American Antiquarian Society. It was he, uh, he has the patience to read through 50 screens, but it was he who said, do you want to buy a litho stone? Well, if you put lithograph into eBay, you'll get 55,000 hits. And if you put stone lithograph, you'll get 25,000. But he said, put lithograph and heavy. <laughs> Because any dealer who has a lithographic stone is sure to say, now look, this is the thing's heavy. Now, I'm not kidding. It's going to cost you for postage to get this thing if you actually buy it. Lithograph, heavy. We have 40 stones. So eBay uh, is, as I say, you don't have to get everything you want. You should certainly have a sniping program uh, like auction raptor so that you can make the uh, bid and uh, lose no sleep if you don't get it or lose no sleep while you're waiting to see if you did or not. So I put some stuff in the far end of the table that actually cost real money. Uh, we have, uh, you all know the Aldine Anchor and Dolphin. Well, we bought uh, coins of uh, 70 AD uh, put out either by Titus or Domitian that show that coin. R Ruth Allen is holding one up. T together with a 1920s Liberty Dime, which is astoundingly similar, except for the milled edge. There's really very little difference between them. And with an explanation, and we have 12 sets. Also, if you just hold up the mezzotint thing, uh, I recently commissioned Graham Stevens to uh, take a mezzo tint plate and rock it uh, progressively and then do proofs, and then to make a mezzo tint from another plate with progressive proofs showing how it worked. With The one that's really fun is the final one because he scraped off the mezzo tinting at the bottom so he could put the caption on. Uh, th this can be pricey. But I, I want to close by pointing out uh, that there are a number of foundations in this country that like to support programs by buying them stuff. And the names you might want to look out for are the Breslauer Foundation, the Delmas Foundation, and there's one other, hold on, and the Pine Tree Foundation. Uh, so it, uh, it is not impossible to do this with a relatively uh, small amount of money, especially if you have time. And, you know, in, when I was in my 20s and 30s trying to establish a program, I had a lot of time uh, and a lot of energy by comparison to now at least. Now, returning to youthful energy, Barbara Heritage began working at Rare Book School in 2002. Uh, she was 11. 
and uh, <laughs> developed a project of her own, which costs no money, right. that she's going to tell you about. So, um, no, that's okay. I'm going to speak loudly, um, because I'm going to walk back and forth to this table. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, because I know that we want to have time for Q&A. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in the room, and I think there's a lot that we can share in terms of teaching strategies. But I just wanted to expand on Terry's points about inexpense, um, building resources using eBay, and also um, in the ways that that opens up certain possibilities. And then also, um, I want to talk about teaching for undergraduates, uh, because a lot of us are teaching, and we have to teach to the canon or something in response to the canon. And so it's great to talk about paper, it's great to talk about type, it's great to talk about illustration processes, but how does that relate to the syllabus that you have to deliver to your department? Uh, so an experiment that we have at Rare Book School, it really is um, something that I think of as a living project, is, is a collection called the Jane Eyre Collection. And the principal, and this was something that Terry started, he was at at a gas station getting his silver Mercedes repaired, and he read a Newsweek. And in the Newsweek, um, under a report on YouTube, um, there was a panel about four different editions, paperback editions of Jane Eyre that had been published recently. And Terry thought, aha, you actually took that magazine from the gas station, Terry, and put it in the collection, and started collecting Jane Eyre in multiple copies. And this was an example, Terry had already started collections of multiple copies of books because paperbacks are cheap and you can see how the blurbs, the advertisements, the marketing changes with multiple, you know, multiple copies show you how book reception changes over time. So we had the Scarlet Letter, we had other copies of important books. Jane Eyre provided a different window because we expanded the scope of the collection anything connected to Jane Eyre, I think I expanded the scope of the collection. Terry was more focused on text, and then I would put Jane Eyre into eBay, and up came dolls, paper dolls, magnets, um, Jane and Tarzan mouse pads. Um, this is a Jane Eyre infinity scarf <laughs> with the text on a piece of clothing. And it occurred to me that when we're studying classics, we need to really study how classics cut across culture. And it's not just about books that we read in classes, the Penguin paperback. It's also about Jane Eyre, the board book for infants. So it's about the idea of Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre as it's instantiated for lots of different readers. These books and these articles are extraordinarily cheap. Now, by comparison, the first edition of Jane Eyre in original cloth can sell for, it's in very good condition, in original cloth of $100,000. UVA owns a first edition and a second and third. And those are in three volumes. And that says something about the literary market in 1847 when novels had to be if they were going to be um, pushed at a certain level, they were going to go through circulating libraries. But I want to connect to other reading um, markets. I want to connect to my students and what they think about reading. And what are they reading? They're probably reading things like Jane Steele or Jane Slayer. 
which is so Jane Eyre is adopted into the vampire reading culture, right? Um, or into other kinds of reading circles. So we, ha we see how Jane Eyre continues to be revived through other reading habits and patterns and styles and trends. But if we do this over time, we see earlier trends. For example, Jane Eyre marketed as a mass market romance novel with a typical scene one would find. And then mass market romance novels that are not Jane Eyre, but that use Jane Eyre in its advertising. Now these are really only findable through eBay, right? Because who's gonna, how else are you gonna find the content of a blurb? Library catalogs aren't going to include it. Are you going to go to the bookstore and read the blurb of every romance novel that's out there? Or are there people who are on eBay who are conscientiously copying out, typing out the blurbs, hoping that you're going to buy it for a dollar, which hell we are, <laughs> because, because it says something like this. To Richard, lovely Laura was like candy dangled in front of a baby. He was offered the sweet, but denied the taste. Yet, sometimes grizzly bears enjoy a taste of honey, and in fiction, the disfigured Mr. Rochester won the love of Jane Eyre. So Richard dared to woo his green-eyed goddess, gambling that, like Jane, Laura would one day declare, reader, I married him. Now this seems, <laughs> this seems like, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm getting a laugh, great. Great for teaching to get a laugh. But when a student comes and says, I want to know about Jane Eyre and romance, you can give them a box of these, and they can actually do original research. They can do comparative work, they can read these, they can find more, and write a really kick-ass project. Not only that, it's not just that material, because this is one of my favorite um, examples from that collection, sub-collection in Jane Eyre. It's from Devil in the Dark, but this, uh, this author actually has a statement about the influence of Jane Eyre. I have long wanted to write a book about a dark, tormented hero, a man like the classic heat flipper, Mr. Rochester and the courageous heroine who brings light into his life. Devil in the Dark is that book. It is my tribute to the women writers of Gothic literature and their wonderful books, among them Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And so again, this is an example of how um, we can find the novel and its influence embodied in other forms of literature, other books, and make real connections. Um, so there, there are a million ways with a big book like this. You can do it with Frankenstein, you can do it with Dracula, you can do it with Alice in Wonderland, you can do it with Ovid, as I discovered. I started building on, um, because I thought, go far back. And translations, you can do it. So here are the different categories. Translation, abridgment, adaptation, theater, film, children's books. My favorite, too, possibly of all of them, well, the historiography of teaching itself, school books that teach Jane Eyre, prize books with book plates having evidence of students reading Jane Eyre, cliff notes that probably will be saved by no other special collection, probably. Um, so in closing, this is, just, this is just to throw it out there. I say when we're collecting, collect the low spots. Don't collect the high spots. The low spots are the things the other collectors aren't thinking about collecting. They seem to have no value, and they are going to be forgotten until we 
find them, read them, interpret them. And the great thing is, I can have a box in my classroom. I can have a box in my office hours, and my students can check these out. They can take them back to their dorm. They can take them home with them, and they can work on them. And guess what? In the past, they've also started collecting them themselves. Because a little children's reader, like this one, they can get on Amazon, or say this, for like $4 used, and they get excited about doing it. So they put together their own collections. And then they can, again, really own their research. Because there might be thousands of people who've written on Jane Eyre, but they were reading the Norton edition. <laughs> there are not many people who wrote on Jane Eyre who read these. It's a way of, for them to connect with living readers, living audiences, to think about how this book continues to survive and why it's important. We don't read Jane Eyre just because it's on a syllabus. We read it because we're <laughs> surrounded by it. So um, I put that out there, and I think Terry and I would welcome questions. Did you Ruth bring too. Disciplining Jane? I did not, Terry. Oh. <laughs> there's, there's an erotica section of the Jane Eyre collection. Too. It's called Disciplining Jane, and you should see the cover. <laughs> you should see the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so, Some of us have been privileged to see that cover. Take Eric Holzenberg's class, and I promise you will see the cover. Bob, do you have a question? Yeah, tell the story about the wall all right. <laughs> so I didn't bring the wallpaper. Uh, I feel like I have, you know, you guys are like groupies. Um, <laughs> this is a picture of the wallpaper. Um, I will warn you, it gets addictive when you start collecting something um, and you cut across different objects. It becomes about material culture. You start seeing it everywhere. It's kind of fun. I was at a wedding and I, I was, at, at a private residence, and I was in the bathroom <laughs> looking at the wallpaper, which imitated books, and I was reading it, thinking, ah, I wonder if Jane Eyre's in there. <laughs> and Jane Eyre was in there. So I went to the host, and I said, you know, I really, I have this collection. <laughs> and I was wondering, do you happen to have an extra roll of that in your basement or something that I could buy off of you? <laughs> he said, you know, no, we don't. But we hate that wallpaper. Um, you can have some if you want. So I took a razor blade, I steamed up the bathroom, turned the sink and the shower on full blast, closed the door, steamed it up, and I found the whole section, you know, the, so I got the whole, and I cut it off, um, and with the help of another person at the time, it's very controversial because it's, what were we doing in there, but, but um, <laughs> and then I dried it out, and, um, and actually in the catalog, um, I acknowledge it's the gift of Colonel David Kay and Mrs. Janie Cannon to Rare Book School's Jane Eyre Collection. I promised them I would acknowledge them, and now I, I give them a plug. But um, again, this is something. <laughs> this is something that again shows kind of the um, Jane Eyre as an important book. Jane Eyre group with other books, and I should add that I collect Jane Eyre through Rare Book School. I collect Jane Eyre in boxed sets. Jane Eyre in collected sets of romances or historical fiction because I want to show, I believe that showing how it's grouped together with other novels indicates how people are reading it. Um, so there are many ways to approach a book. And I guess this, this is like you know trying to think of um, how many ways you can approach this novel through different channels, box sets, ephemera, um, even things like self-published literature. This is a spin-off Rochester. Um, this is actually erotica too. This is what happened, really happened, when Jane Eyre 
was hanging out with Rochester after they had their proposal seen. She doesn't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, this is an artifact. This is um, Jane Eyre, the two-volume Toughness edition of Jane Eyre was digitized, and this was this is um, an ebook that's printed, and it's in two volumes as well. But it's an artifact of digitization. Um, this has no textual authority. It's only good for teaching that this was di this was the, the digitized book happened to be an in 1850 copy, not the 1847 three volume, which might have been easier and more helpful because Bronte deliberately did mark um, in her manuscript where the volumes were to divide and took care to decide that. This is more about um, formats and and I use it to teach that. So anyway, um, but I'm really so. What other questions are there? Or comments. Comments. Yeah. I, I like what you said about collecting low spots. Um, when I was at Duke uh, running a women's history collection, I was a big proponent of collecting um, trade catalogs, Victoria's Secret, uh, Jane Peterman, etc. Because I, you know, maybe had the intuition they wouldn't be around for that long. They they didn't, you know, maybe Victoria's Secret still sends them around. But I found that it's almost impossible for anyone, even the Victoria's Secret Company, to have a complete run of that catalog. And I think it tells so much about society, about graphic design, about business, and most of all, imagery of women and how they were portrayed through the years. And they may not teach very well now, but they will teach very well indeed in 30 years. I think yeah. they teach very well now, too. Yeah. Um, something like Jake Peterman, the copy inside. <laughs> uh, when I show trade catalogs and menus as well, Classes, they are the most looked at objects. Well, it's advertising again, like Terry said, with life, but you're inviting them to inspect the advertising. Yeah. Yeah. We thought a box full of LL beans. Mm -hmm. But I don't reason. know if there are places that actually have entire runs because apparently the company is not up the name of Marcus doesn't keep no. them. And it also tells your students, I mean, that even more than these low engineers, I mean, that really, you know, they're free. Yeah. No one would have paid for them, and so your students really are asked to. It also tells them they need to pay attention to the quotidian yeah. around them. I mean, Terry, do you want to talk about your the other project? I don't know if you. Which one? Cereal boxes. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, it's it's it seemed eventually that rare book school was in it for the long haul. So uh, I am a creature of habit. In the morning, I have Cheerios and I save the boxes. And when I get 13, I hand them over to Rare Book School for the deep reserve collection, <laughs> where they're not, I'm not expecting anybody will use them for 50 years. But who is going to have 13 immaculate Cheerios boxes to teach with in 50 years? Original condition. In original mm -hmm. condition. But that's just the beginning. Does it, does it stretch that over how many years? Have you done then oh, snapshots? You, uh, yeah. How so many years of Cheerio boxes are you going to be able eventually to teach? Oh, no, I stopped generally at 13, but I try to. Sometimes it's 26. We'll see. But, but no, I mean, come on. But, but, but you're using it to teach history of printing <laughs> registration, but you can also think about lettering, advertising, messages, advertising, yes, yeah, um, and history of advertising. It's where the money is. I yeah. mean, 
But I also, I don't know if you used them. I, I did butter papers. Do you have my butter papers? Mm -hmm. I can pull those. Good, right? Lando Lakes, you know, it becomes, well, that's paper. It's, it's paper that's been beaten to a pulp, as it were. But uh, I got 13 of them, and Tim ought to be using them in his paper making history class. And if he doesn't, somebody will, you know, sooner or later. This costs nothing except uh, a little embarrassment when Speak, speaking of paper, I, uh, sometimes students ask me about starting their own collection of, of historical papers, and I remind them that they can go into any bookstore anywhere in the world and ask for anything that the bookseller has that's broken or that they don't want. And if it's printed before 1800, I guarantee it's on handmade paper. It can't be otherwise. Yeah. Likewise with printing. That's right. So, yeah. uh, and like Terry says, booksellers often can't wait to get rid of this stuff. They don't know what to do with it. The bigger the book, the better, because you'll get blank pages where the watermark is easier to see. Ask for folios, book and folios. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Dan afterwards. Um, you know, uh, at my institution, the University of Saskatchewan, um, we might be in a unique situation. I, I don't know if, uh, if you all have similar situations, but we have a retiree who worked in our archive inspection collection. He, he retired probably 12, 13 years ago. He still comes into work every day, and we have a desk for him. And he does nothing but curate collection uh, things that, that he, he knows that we'd be interested in. Uh, he basically buys the stuff himself and sells it at cost. But um, there might be another source of uh, the, the labor that's involved in eBay. Since they're printed. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Bill Royal, who was indispensable for that reason. Not only because he was a real printer and could teach us things, uh, but because he began printing in the 1930s and he knew the letterpress environment in a way that none of us did. All of us, I mean, there are dozen people in the room I know who can really print, but I think they would agree with me, wouldn't you agree, Ruth, that we're not real printers, even though we know our way about the printing press. But Bill Royal went to work every morning and uh, he's the one couldn't bear to give up his lamplight machine when he went offset, so we divided it into pieces and gave it to Rare Book School. Some of you have seen Hart yeah. and Lamplight. That was Bill Royal. Imaginative beyond belief. Great man. He died in his 80s, uh, oh, 15 years ago. Or it would be nice to have another one. Well, this fellow is, has, uh, has purchased over 3,000 uh, items from eBay. Uh, I didn't mention offers. And, and, uh, has a perfect buyer's score. Well, if you look at another handout I forgot to use, it's on authors. Authors' cards as a whole, there's a whole Christmas card on that. Uh, the authors and authors changes. So that you go back to a late 19th century set of all these games been around since the middle of the 19th century. Uh, you won't recognize the names of half of the authors and the books they published are available on eBay for visible prices. But it was clear that, I mean, if you're in authors, you're a famous author, right? But uh, <laughs> times change. Yeah, Elizabeth Stewart Fox, yeah. Lucy Larkin. Right. Yeah. Well, we, we have what? 
two boxes full of sets of authors. I don't know they're used very much, but they will someday. Where do you store everything? Sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a good question. <laughs> the world is full of faculty members who have an office full of stuff they teach for because there's no other way. And Rarebook School has inherited, this is another thing I should have mentioned, we've inherited half a dozen collections from retiring faculty members. So bear that in mind, too. Uh, we've got the Rutgers collection, we've got the Illinois collection, we've got the Florida collection. Oh, that is to say, those used in the library schools in the three places. And we have a very large sub-basement in Alderman Library, which has a few million books in it. And so the basement of the library is where Whipcage will There is relatively little desirable space in the university, but there's a lot of undesirable space. <laughs> <laughs> so the strategy for these things, I just, I think bankers' boxes, what I, what I do, because I collect for teaching on my own for my classes, because um, I don't, can't always take rare book school stuff to class, but I just, if you collect bankers' boxes worth of stuff, they stack very well at home. You can keep them portable and they travel well. So I think if you can keep your units to banker size box, um, or take something like this um, a plastic box, this is about the size, something. This is even better because um, you can store it on the floor and if there's a flood, you don't have to worry about your items getting damaged. But if you do this, it's stackable, it's you know portable, and um, you can take it with you to class and bring it home. It's a convenience problem. We use special collections all the time uh, in Virginia, but that means not before nine, not after five, right. and a lot of rules. Students can't take them home. They can't check them out. And so in many cases, we've bought stuff that special collections have because it's just isn't convenient. It's a 15-second thing. If you can't do it in 15 seconds, if it comes up, it's important doing it, right? You can't go to special collections and pull the, the, the right thing. But look, vegetable growth, that's the secret. In 1972, one of my students, when I was at the very beginning of this, came to me and she said, it occurs to me that the chief pedagogical tool of this program is an extension cord, <laughs> which is necessary because the screen was there, and the projector was there, and the plug in the classroom. <laughs> Hamilton Hall at Columbia was under the screen. So if you didn't have an extension cord, you were lost. But that's all we have. You know, and now we've got a lot. Yeah. I just have two quick comments. One, to follow up on you and the person from Duke who was speaking about collecting low. I don't know if you've taken a look at the results of the Young Women's Collectors yes, Contest that Heather O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney ran. And look at what some of those young women are collecting, and you will see very, very smart collections bought very inexpensively because they're looking at things that nobody else gives a big rat's fanny about. <laughs> and the point is, when you do start to give a big rat's fanny about it, you get some astonishing things. Absolutely. And, yeah. and people can read about that, Dan. Is, it, is, it, is there, um, remind me, it's quite, what is it? I know it's on Rebecca's site, but the ABA. It's, it's Honey and Wax. Yeah. And if you look up Honey and Wax Book Prize, you'll, find it. you'll get a That's lot of honey and from wax. Read it. Yeah. I just wanted to say that the winner of that contest took my history of the book class at Cornell University.
controversy in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit more apologetic about Jane Eyre and that kind of collection than I would be. And what I would suggest, if you don't already know it, a 2017 print from Johns Hopkins University Press, not exactly a fly-by-night place, is by a person named Devoni Lucer, and it looks at what she calls the making of Jane Austen. And she is looking at many of exactly the sorts of things that you are collecting as a way of seeing how Austen's reputation and how readers' sense of Austen shifts over the decades relatively a few decades longer than air. Um, and it is a stunningly smart piece of work. That means your collection is doubling value. If you're doing this kind of collecting. Okay, there's one other thing in your packets. And this is, uh, it's a little complicated, and I did not have time to finish the instruction sheet. Barbara and I were rooting around in the basement a couple of days ago. We found a whole box of these. You each have one. It's a complete duodecimo book in five and a half sheets and uh, with a piece of decorative chain line paper and also a piece of handmade paper that you can bind in it. So uh, you've got two copies. They're, they're rough folded because they were too big otherwise. So that's one to make up and one to keep flat. But email me and I'll send you the instructions. We were going to sell these and I forgot. Now we're giving them to you for free. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you can, yeah, it's, it's, um, there's, there are two sets of those sheets so you can have flat and you can buy the other set. Does everyone, Terry, do you want to give them your email so they can write to you? It's not very difficult. Terry.bellinger at virginia.edu or Am I still books? I think no. I, I, I'm not books anymore. State Bollinger. I think I'm bibliophile. She's still T, aren't you still TB03 or something? Well, I'm TB3 right in yeah. religion, but uh, my alias is, look, yeah, I'm not going to find Other comments on teaching or things that you found really helpful that you want to share with the group? Things that you're doing in your classes or with students that. We had a, uh, someone in rare book school uh, 10 years or so that Dan and I, I think she was in our version of uh, teaching, I forget her name and I'm ashamed because I should know it. She teaches at SUNY Buffalo. Oh, um, very interesting person. She was at Conn College before that. But she has 110 people in her class. It's Buffalo State. Most of the students are commuters. How do you teach with stuff? She can't do field trips because some of her students are commuting an hour and a half each way and they've got kids at home. That's a real challenge. And some of the uh, making something out of nothing uh, 
is what she had to do, but that's the photocopying is her friend. Because you can ask for the photocopies back, and you don't have to keep making them every year. And you can, vegetables will grow. You know, you've got two leaves, and then four leaves, and so on. And one other thing that you remarked was that your institution is your friend because they will supply you with things whether they know they're doing so or not. <laughs> but the other person or thing that is your friend is your library. And I've done this, I believe you've done this at Columbia, at UVA, at Penn, and elsewhere. One of the things you can do is send your students into the stacks and say, what in God's name do you find here that shouldn't be here but might really be better served in special collections? And I have never, ever walked into a library, public or university, where I could not find something. My first day in my now former job was being told by the director for collections that fortunately I didn't have to deal with anything that was left in the stacks. And I said, give me two hours. <laughs> and I came back with a pile of books, one of which he asked me a day or so later, where did you find it? We've had it marked missing since 1937. And I said, I found it exactly where I knew I would find it, in religion. Because nobody cared nobody and nobody looked. looked and nobody knows how to read Roman numerals. <laughs> <laughs> I did that exercise in Columbia in the early 70s. The earliest book found in the Columbia stacks was 1510. <gasps> yeah, we didn't find one in about 15 cannibals. <laughs> but the great thing about that, too, is a lot of circulating collections are at risk, and a lot of 19th and 20th century material um, is because it's not old. Because there are um, trigger dates that special collections librarians use for transfers uh, to special collections that might be around 1830 or so, right? It depends on, on the different library. There are a lot of materials that are in there, like blackwoods and original wrappers. You're going to probably find that. There's a lot of stuff that your students could find very useful. And also, the more they use those items, the more the librarians know that they are of value, that they are being used. And they're not; they're less likely to be sold to better world books or to be discarded. And so, the more you use those materials and have your students use them, the more the materials are likely to be um, retained by the university. Um, in fact, they probably will be retained by the university. So, it's a really good way to kind of um, preserve um, those those wonderful collections because once they're gone, you think. I mean, there was took a long time to build collections of two million circulating tax books and a lot of money. It will be very hard to replace them when they're gone. And so it's really important for the students to use them now so the things that are of interest are retained. Oh yeah, it's just a comment. As a librarian, that's what makes it so hard to craft a really good specific collection development policy because there's always contingencies, especially things that are going to relate to your particular institution or you know, I'm an art librarian, so things that relate to the artwork. So it's like going home in, especially for what gets classified, to go into a rare collection. I just found something here I forgot to mention. Uh, I bought on eBay, very cheap, uh, a collection of dozens of wood engravings 
pen knives. But what also came with it were dozens of electrotypes which had been made from the wood engravings. Now, you can always tell a wood engraving that's been cut for electrotyping because it's not finished. The outside, you see, is not done because they're going to flop a wax sheet down on this to take an impression, and you can do it more easily if you've got a border. You take that, you coat it with graphite, you put it into a bath of electrolytic salts, you grow a shell of copper, which you then back in tight metal and mount so that you have an exact copy of your wood engraving in, uh, in, in an electrotype. We have nine identical sets of these. But we have another thing that goes with it that is even better. It's a 1936 toy company catalog from the Midwest. And it came with a box full of electrotypes and wood engravings made for electrotyping so we can match them. But one of them is a 1936 Nash Rambler. <laughs> so now you start thinking, who in hell is making wood engravings with Nash Ramblers in 1936? Why don't they just take a photograph? Well, we think the answer is they were a provincial town, and a wood engraver could run up a pen knife in an hour. And it was faster for him just to run it up than it was to send somebody to Cleveland to have uh, a Zinco made of the thing. That's the best we've been able to come up with. But look, there's no way that a 1936 <coughs> Nash Rambler wood engraving can be older than 1935. Right? <laughs> so it's immensely convincing with a, with a pen knife. You don't know when it was done. Nash Rambler Again, people who sell things on eBay don't know what they're selling. So you have to be patient. They've never heard of electrotypes. They've never heard of wood engraving happen. And so you have to, you know, look. Uh, you get tired, you get good for nothing. I mean, it's an alternative to uh, the Duncan Abbey. You, know? you go on eBay and you control. And you know, so the way you're going to find stuff. I mean, it's, I have a positive feedback of more than 4,000 at one point. Not quite 100 years but almost. And no, we, no, we didn't have any for a very long time, we had to space. And I had, a, I had two deans, Richard Darling and, and uh, Robert Wedgeworth, who let me do it, who gave me a very long reach, or as Catherine, who was my assistant, for a year at the end of the, our uh, Columbia years. Uh, it can be done, it can be done with very limited resources. And eventually, you know, you get old and fat, 